Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here today as we start off this brand new series. And what we're going to be doing through the series is really exploring someone that is often forgotten, someone that is often overlooked, someone that I think we all need to understand deeper and better, and that's the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to explore in the series. We want to explore the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, specifically, specifically through the lens of understanding the Spirit through the Old Testament. So for my hope for this series is that all of us might grow in our understanding of the Spirit, might grow in our understanding of how the Spirit is working in the Old Testament, and then especially that we might grow in our understanding of how the Spirit is working in our lives. Because this is just true as followers of Jesus, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, we worship and we follow God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But often the Holy Spirit is almost like forgotten or overlooked. And we want to change that through this series because here's kind of my big idea and why this series matters for me so deeply. That here's what we affirm as Christians, okay? That we affirm that God's spirit is at work in your life. Anyone want to say amen to that? That God's spirit is at work in your life. But here's what we want to change with this series. But if we don't understand him, we will then often live unaware of him. I want to say that again. That if we don't understand him, we will often live actually unaware of him. So for this series, we want to grow in our understanding of God, the Father, Son, but specifically the Holy Spirit. Because as we talk about here at Bethany, we believe that we are actually called to change the world, starting right here in Niagara. We believe that our lives need to be changed by Jesus and that we are called to join with Jesus in changing lives. And that we talk about, we talk about following really Jesus in three key terms. We talk about up with and out. That if... If we're going to be a fully formed follower of Jesus, we need to daily be connecting up with God. We need to be journeying deeply with others. And we need to be serving and sacrificing out in the community. But to do those two, three things of up with and out, we actually need to have a really deep understanding of the spirit. Because there is no way that we can actually grow deeply with God without actually encountering a spirit. There's no way we can grow deeply with others, right? Journeying with others without his spirit actually leading us and guiding us. And there is certainly no way that we can serve and sacrifice well out in the community if we are not discerning where God's spirit is already at work. So for this series, as I said, that's what we want to explore. We want to explore really through the Old Testament, through the Old Testament, what we can learn about the spirit moving back then and also then how the spirit might be moving in our lives today. Because the Old Testament is really the foundation for the new. And what we're going to see really in and through the Old Testament is that the Old Testament's ideas and teaching and understanding of the Spirit, this will challenge many of our preconceptions, many of our assumptions, because the Spirit in the Old Testament is fierce. The Spirit is almost in some ways like wild, like there's such a power and a pervasive, you know, um, movement of the Spirit that we're going to see how the Spirit changes lives in the Old Testament and how then the Spirit might change lives in our world as well. And so to begin today, I want to begin actually teaching you some Hebrew. Because if we're going to learn about the spirit in the Old Testament, we need to learn about the Hebrew word for spirit in the Old Testament. And so to begin with, here's something that's quite obvious, okay? But Hebrew and English are very different. I know that's an obvious thing to say, but it's also where we need to start, that Hebrew and English are very different. English is a very, like, modern language. And what I mean by that is English is really all about, like, precise meanings. It's about defining things, categorizing things, classifying things. English is a modern language in that sense. Hebrew, though, Hebrew, though, its words in Hebrew have much more like range. They're kind of stretchy. They actually cover a lot more distance. Or to use a linguistic term, their semantic range is quite large. And so this is important for us to understand that Hebrew and English actually just function very differently as languages. You can actually see this in the number of words that Hebrew and English have. Anyone want to take a guess? Want to take a guess how many words there are in ancient Hebrew? Okay. 
If you were to kind of count all the words in ancient Hebrew, here's how many words there are. There are about 7,000 words. That's it. That's the, seven, the, the amount of words total, 7,000 words. Okay? Anyone want to take a guess how many words there are in English? Right? Well, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, whose job it is, I guess, to count, okay? according to the Oxford English Dictionary, there is more than 171,000 words in English. There's more than 171,000 words in English, and that's not including the 41,000 words that are obsolete that we don't use anymore. So when it comes to our lives, when it comes to our lives, just follow with me with this. Hebrew, right? Hebrew is exploring the totality of our lives with 7,000 words. As us as English speakers, right? We're exploring the totality of our lives with 171,000 words. And remember, the number of words is covering the exact same range of experiences, right? But what we see then in Hebrew is that those 7,000 words have to cover so much more. They have a larger semantic range, right? That our English words are so often very precise and very, very specific, and they're about classifying and categorizing things. So what this means then, and the reason I bring this up, is that when we seek to translate any word from Hebrew into English, we will always lose something. We will always lose something because the Hebrew words actually always cover kind of more than our English words do. So, when it comes to understanding about the spirit in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for spirit is the word ruah. But there is no good or great translation in English for this. Because the word ruah in Hebrew, it does mean spirit. As in like God's spirit or our spirits or spirits around us, whatever it may be. Okay, That it does mean spirit. But the word ruah in Hebrew, it also not only means spirit, it also means breath, and it also means wind. That ruah in the Old Testament means all three, actually. And there's this overlap or interplay really between each of those kind of emphasis. And sometimes when the writers are using the word ruah in the Old Testament, they're really emphasizing one of those three, or sometimes multiple of those three. That there's really this dynamic interplay in the word. So what this means is, is that when we come to understand God's spirit in the Old Testament, that really we need to expand our way of thinking because it's not just about his spirit, but the word ruah actually means spirit, breath, and wind. And so throughout the series then, what I'm going to seek to do is to use the word ruah as much as possible to actually help to expand kind of our mental shelf space. Because so often we think of those three things, right? Like spirit, wind, and breath as three distinct entities. But in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew language and in how it functions, that's not actually quite true. Jack Levison um, is an amazing uh, theologian. And he writes a book called The Boundless God. And I'm going to quote a lot from this book throughout this series. Um, it's really excellent. I rely on it a lot. I encourage you to read it if you have a chance. He says this about the translation of Ruah. He says, Ruah carries more weight than English translations can communicate. That's just true. It just carries more weight. He continues and he says, in the Old Testament, Ruah shatters, or perhaps a better word is transcends, the feeble dichotomies with which it is so easy otherwise to operate. He says the nearly 400 references to Ruah in the Old Testament cannot be easily sliced and diced into breath, wind, spirit, and spirit. That our dichotomies of either it's this or that or binaries of this or that, it doesn't work with the word Ruah. The word Ruah is really bigger and larger than any of our English words of spirit. So as I said, I'm going to use it in a lot of different contexts to try to hope for us to understand this word and how God's spirit in the Old Testament works. So what I'm going to do for this series is I'm going to show you how God's Ruah works in the Old Testament in some specific ways. Today, what I want to explore and uncover is how God's spirit, how his Ruah blows like wind and breathes as in breath. Okay? So we're going to take a look at how God's spirit blows and breathes. This is how the Ruah functions in the Old Testament. 
Then next week, we're going to take a look at how God's spirit can come upon someone. This is a phrase that's often used in the Old Testament about what the spirit does. So we're going to explore that. Then we're going to take a look at how God's spirit can fill you, how his ruah can actually fill you. And lastly, we're going to take a look in the week four is how God's ruah can be passed on, how you can actually pray over people and pass on some of your spirit and some of God's spirit to someone else. That's what we're going to see. And as I said, as I said at the beginning, some of these Old Testament passages, I think they really will actually play with some of our preconceptions and some of our categories and some of our uh, preconceptions and assumptions. I think this is a good thing for us to experience. It's good to have the Bible set the tone for our lives. So we're going to explore some interesting stories throughout this. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Numbers 11 here today. I want to read from Numbers 11 and Psalm 104 here today. And what we're going to explore first is how God's spirit, his ruah, is like wind. And then we're going to explore really in Psalm 104 how God's spirit, his ruah, is like breath. Okay? And so I want to begin in Numbers 11. And this is a bit of a strange story, actually. uh, Throughout our passages and throughout our time in this series, really looking in the Old Testament, we're going to be exploring some really, I don't know, obscure stories. Not kind of the main Old Testament stories you sometimes think of, of like Daniel and Goliath or whatever it may be. And so what we see here in Numbers 11 is God has just really freed the people from Egypt. That he has actually used his spirit, right, to blow a wind that separates the water and the people have crossed through. And so they've just experienced that. And here in Numbers 11, we're going to see really three divine acts of God and how they involve his ruah, his spirit, and some of what his ruah does. So I want to read to you first about the first interaction. And what happens is the people, after they are saved by God, they start to complain because honestly, this is kind of just a part of our nature. I think we have a tendency towards complaining and whining and all of that. Even after God has done something, we are very quick to forget. So that's what happens in Numbers 11. So we read this. Soon the people began to complain about their hardship and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the Lord's anger blazed against them, and he sent a fire to rage among them. And he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Then the Lord people screamed to Moses for help. And when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. After that, the area was known as Tibera, which means the place of burning, because fire from the Lord burned among them there. And this is a strange story. And there's almost the implicit assumption that when the fire spreads, it's because of wind, right? That's how fire spreads. And again, wind is another word for ruah, which is also God's breath or his spirit, okay? So we read this. Next in Numbers 11, we read of Moses being overwhelmed and he needs help. So God responds with this. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel. Bring them to a tabernacle to stand there with you. I will come down and talk to you there. I will take some of the spirit or the ruah that is upon you and I'll put that spirit also upon them. They will bear the burden of the people along with you so you will not have to carry it alone. So Moses went out and he reported the Lord's words to the people and he gathered the 70 elders and he stationed them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and he spoke to Moses. And then he gave the 70 elders the same ruah that was a part of Moses. And when the spirit rested upon them, when the ruah rested upon them, they prophesied. But this had never happened again. Two men, Eldad and Medad, had stayed behind in the camp, and they were listed among the elders, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle. Yet the spirit, the ruah, rested upon them as well. So they prophesied there in the camp. And then lastly, in Numbers 11, we lead of one more really kind of divine moment in act. Um, And it says this, Now the Lord sent a wind, or that's the word again for ruah, 
right, that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction, there were quail flying about three feet above the ground, or some translations actually think it's that there were quail three feet deep on the ground. So the people went out and caught quail all that day and throughout the night and all the next day too. No one gathered less than 50 bushels. And in this three kind of stories, what we're going to see is really three different things I want to emphasize with God's Ruah and what his spirit looks like in the Old Testament and how his spirit works and functions and moves. And what we see really is three divine acts. We see a fire, we see prophecy, and then we also see all this quail being driven out by a wind by God's Ruah or by God's spirit. And so what I want to notice in this passage is really three things. That when we start to really pay attention to how God's spirit works in the Old Testament, especially his spirit that kind of blows or that breathes or that moves through wind, what we see is that God's ruah cannot be contained. What we see is that God's ruah is really lavish or abundant. And thirdly, what we see is that God's ruah defies easy classification. So the first thing I want to notice in the story is really how when God's spirit moves, that there is this almost uncontrollable nature to it that we as human beings are not in control of God's spirit. I think that's what this passage really points out really quite simply and quite obviously. That when the fire kind of starts to spread, that there is no controlling it until Moses prayed to God for intervention. That when God moved and he actually poured out his spirit upon people to prophesy, that it actually uh, spilled out over the boundaries. There were two people, two men, who weren't where they were supposed to be, and yet still they prophesied that God's spirit was kind of poured out and it was abundant and couldn't be contained. The third thing that I think we see too is that with the wind that drives forward is that God's spirit cannot be controlled by those who are around uh, them. Instead, that there is really this idea that God is the one who's in control and that even though God's spirit is a part of our world, we are not the ones who control it. That the wind-breathing spirit is fierce, strong, and intense. That's kind of what we see in this passage, that the wind, spirit, um, breath of God, it is strong and it is intense. The fire grows, prophecy spills out, and the wind brings quail. So we cannot constrain really the rule of God. The second thing I think we notice in this passage is not only kind of the fierce strength or that God's spirit cannot be contained, we also see that God's ruah, remember his spirit, his wind, his breath, right? That God's ruah is actually really abundant. I think that's important for us to understand that God's ruah is abundant, that it's not like it is limited. It's not like it is scarce. It's not like there isn't God's power and presence for people. That instead, God's ruah in this passage, it is lavish, it is abundant, and it's there uh, for the people. We see this specifically when the prophecy, as I said, it kind of overflows into two people who aren't there. There's an abundance of God's ruah. We also see this in the quail, actually, that there's an abundance of quail that God's ruah brings, right? That your text might say that there is literally like three feet of quail, you know, on the ground, which is kind of a comical picture to see people kind of like, you know, wading through quail. But what this is meant to show us is really the abundance of God's ruah, that his spirit is lavish. His spirit is strong. There isn't a scarcity or limit to his spirit. Instead, there is this abundance to it. So we see that God's spirit is fierce. We see that God's spirit is abundant. The third thing that we see, the third thing we see is that God's spirit kind of defies easy categories. This is just true for us as modern Western people. We love things in neat, uh, tidy, stacked kind of categories. But the Old Testament, the Old Testament is going to challenge this because the Old Testament doesn't quite operate in our modern day categories, especially when it comes to understanding this idea of God's ruah, of God's spirit, which is also wind or breath, right? That God's ruah defies easy categories. This is seen really in Moses' interaction with God. 
So God says to Moses, when he's really struggling, right, he says, okay, I'm going to share some of your spirit. That's what he says. That's upon you. He says this, I will come down and talk to you there, and I'll take some of the spirit, the ruah, that is upon you, and I'll put the spirit, ruah, upon them. Notice with me that what the NLT does in this translation, and most translations do, that what the NLT does is it capitalizes that word spirit. So it makes it seem as if God is saying, I'm going to come and take some of my spirit that's in you, Moses, and I'm going to give that to the others to prophesy as well. But notice with me in Hebrew, that's actually not so clear. That's actually an interpretation. Because literally what God says is, I will take some of the ruah that is upon you, Moses, and I'll put that ruah upon them also. That really, this verse could be interpreted in the exact way of saying that God's going to take some of Moses' charisma, some of his leadership, some of his skills, some of his spirit, and put it on someone else. That's how this verse could be interpreted. Now, I believe, I believe obviously in this passage, that what God is doing is taking some of his spirit that he's put on Moses. I'm just saying it's just not that clear in the text, that there is some ambiguity. There is some, I don't know, play with the words. It's not so easy to always understand. And even in the third story, where it says that God sent a wind to bring quail. Is this a divine wind? Is this actually God's spirit? Is there some interplay between it? That when it comes to the categories in the Old Testament, things just aren't as clear as we would want or as we might wish. Jack Levison, again, puts it this way. He says, any effort to subdivide ruah into breath, wind, spirit, or spirit is doomed to abject failure. In this story, or sequences of stories, ruah defies categories and overruns tidy edges. This is just true. This is what we need to understand when we're studying scripture, is that the ruah especially, it really defies categories and overruns tidy edges. He says, the implicit presence of ruah and the spread of the fire, the advent of ruah and communal prophesying, and the arrival of dinner and a commanding display of ruah, not one of these is any more or less ruah than the other. There are elsewhere clear instances where ruah is a wind, and we might say merely a wind, or where ruah is what keeps people alive, we might say merely breath. But the genius of the Jewish scriptures is their ability on the whole to fuse these realities. That if, if we're going to understand God's ruah in the Old Testament, we need to realize, really, that it defies categorization. It doesn't make it always easy to say, is this just wind, breath, or spirit? Sometimes it's all three. Sometimes there's an interplay or overlap. There's a dynamic reality to it. So what I hope we understand from this story in Numbers 11 is really just three things. That when we see it and when we read it, what we really see is that God's ruah, his spirit is fierce, God's spirit is abundant, and God's spirit kind of defies easy categories. That the ruah of God is fierce, abundant, and defying of easy categories. That's what we see in this passage. And really, if we can put it in these terms, God's spirit or the ruah of God, it seems like really amazing and miraculous, almost like otherworldly or overwhelming, right? There's this fire that spreads. There's quail that is everywhere. There is prophesying that just spills out upon people to this communal experience. That what we see really is some of the supernatural, we might kind of put it, movement of God in our natural world. That's what we see with the ruah in this passage. But what we also see what we also see is not only God's ruah in this kind of otherworldly sense, we also see God's ruah in a really intimate sense. I want to show you that actually from Psalm 104. So in Numbers 11, we see kind of the strong movement of God. We see really some of the amazing, divine, kind of miraculous things of God. In Psalm 104, we're going to read of how God's ruah is intimate and close to us and how God's ruah is actually what you are breathing right here and right now. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 104. 
Now, if you don't know what Psalm 104 is, Psalm 104 is really a retelling of the Genesis story. And in Genesis, what we see is God's ruah hovering over the waters or really whipping up the waters because ruah can be both spirit or wind. And so in Genesis 2, then what we see is that God breathes into humanity for us to have life. And so Psalm 104 is kind of retelling this story. Okay? So we read this um, beginning in Psalm 104. It says this in verse 5. You placed the world on its foundation so it would never be moved. You clothed the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At your commands, the waters fled, and at the sound of your thunder, it hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. You set a firm boundary for the seas so they would never cover the earth. Here, the psalmist is really retelling Genesis. That's what this is about, about God creating the world, about God ordering it, about God setting the boundaries. And then he continues and says this. He says, listen to the next verse. He says, they all depend on you to give them food as they need it. When you supply it, they gather it. You open your hand to feed them. Talking about the animals and human beings and all of this. And they are all richly satisfied. But listen to this. But if you turn away from them, they panic. When you take away their breath or their ruah, they die and turn again to dust. When you give them your ruah, life is created and you renew the face of the earth. I really want to focus in on verses 29 and 30. But if you turn away from them, they panic. When you take away their ruah, their breath, they die and turn again to dust. When you give them your breath, your ruah, life is created and you renew the face of the earth. And so what I want us to notice here in this passage is something really deeply intimate and personal. How God's spirit can be so deeply connected to each and every one of us that yes, God's spirit can do amazing things like wind and prophecy and driving quail forward. But God's spirit can also be so deeply close to you and to me even right now. Because what the author is saying in, in, um, in Hebrew is really this, that God gives us his spirit breath, right? When he gives us his ruah, and when it's taken away, we die and return to dust. That's what the author is saying here, that God gives us his breath, his spirit, and that's when we are created. And then when he is taken away, that's when we return to dust. That's what this line means. If you turn away from them, they panic. When you take away their breath, when you take away their ruah, when you take away their spirit, Right? Then they die and turn again to dust. And I want to notice something in this really beautiful line where the author says this, when, they, when you give them your breath, life is created. When you give them your breath, life is created. Or what does it say in Hebrew is when you give them your ruah, life is created. So I want to ask a question for you. And this might, I don't know, play with some of our modern categories. But again, we should let the Bible and scripture um, really set our tone and direction and trajectory. I want to ask you a question. Whose breath are you breathing right now? Or to use like Hebrew terms, whose ruah are you ruahing right now? Whose breath are you breathing right now? According to scripture, right? Not according to our modern Western categories. According to scripture, whose breath are you breathing? Let me remind you of what the text says. When you give them your breath, life is created. When you, God, give them your breath, life is created. So whose breath are we breathing right now according to the scripture, according to Psalm 104? The answer is, the answer is God's. That we are actually breathing the very breath of God or the very spirit of God is upon us and within us. This is what this text is saying with both stunning clarity and it's pretty shocking to think right now, to think right now, you are actually ruahing the very ruah of God. You are breathing the very breath of God. I think in our modern Western world, we have fallen for the lie that we are self-contained, isolated individuals. But really, do you know what that is? 
That's idolatry. Because right now, each and every one of us is deeply connected to God because you are only existing because you are breathing the very breath of God. Listen to what the text says. When you give them your breath, life is created. When we receive the breath of God, when we breathe the breath of God, that is when we actually start to exist. That is when life is created. And when we can no longer breathe the breath of God, when we no longer ruah, his ruah, that's when we pass. That's when we die. That's what this verse actually means. When we say, when you take away their breath, they die and they return again to dust. I think this is a beautiful thought. I think this is something that is intensely personal and intimate. And even to use this term, it might even be a bit mystical to think through the fact that right now, when you breathe in and when you breathe out, you are breathing the very ruah of God. And I know for some, that might sound like new agey, but honestly, it's a biblical concept, so we shouldn't give up on what the Bible clearly teaches. Because what this passage teaches is that when God gives us his breath, his ruah, his spirit, that's when life is created. Because this is just true for you and for me. There is no existence apart from God. There is no existence apart from God. All of our lives are dependent on God. That's what this verse is saying. And that our very breath, our very ruah, our very spirit is dependent on God's breath, on his ruah, and on his spirit. What this passage is teaching is something that is stunning and beautiful, that God is with us and that we are breathing the very breath of God. So what does this all mean for us here today? Because I know I've actually covered a fair bit here today. I know there's a lot that we're trying to introduce and that's okay. I think it's important for us to start to wrestle with the real depth of scripture. So what I hope you can understand really today is really three things. Okay, first, that when it comes to God's spirit in the Old Testament, that the word ruah, which means, you know, spirit, also means wind and breath, and that it's not so easy to define which of those three it always means, okay? Secondly, secondly, that what we see in Numbers 11 is really God's spirit, his ruah, moving in really fierce, abundant, and category-breaking ways, okay? We see his um, spirit, his ruah, moving in really fierce, abundant, and category-breaking ways, I think this is important for us to realize that God's spirit is not one that we control, that there is power and agency to him and that he moves in the ways that he would will and that there is real abundance and fierceness and strength to his spirit. Remember, the fire rages, prophecy kind of spills out and there's this communal aspect to it and God's spirit or his wind or both, right? It's probably both, right? Sends the quail and drives food and sustenance in that is super abundant. So we see in Numbers 11 is that God's spirit is really, his ruah is fierce, abundant, and also transcending of categories. But then what we also see is kind of the opposite pole in Psalm 104. So what we see is really the strength and really the kind of otherworldliness or transcendence of God's spirit. But then in Psalm 104, we read of the intimacy of God's spirit, that we are breathing the very breath of God that we are ruahing the very ruah of God, that we are so deeply connected to him that our existence is dependent on us breathing his very breath. That there are these almost two poles to God's spirit and it's both at once. There is this amazing strength, but also this intimacy and this closeness. So what does this mean for us today? Well, today, here's all I hope that we kind of get out of this sermon to try to understand a little bit deeper the depth, the majesty, the beauty of God's spirit in the Old Testament and also then in our lives is that there is an intimacy and an otherworldliness to God's spirit. That there is an intimacy and an otherness to God's spirit. That there is both an intimacy and a transcendence to God's spirit. That both of those two things are true in your life and in mine and in the Old Testament at once. That's what I hope that we understand. 
that we do not relegate God's spirit to just these amazing divine miracles and encounters, or we also don't just relegate God's spirit to just personal intimate moments, that God is active in both. That God is active in both. In intimate, beautiful moments of breathing in and out where we are connected to him. And also these divine, incredible moments of quail, of fire, and of prophecy that God is active in them both. But what does this mean then for us today when I say that really God's ruah is both intimate and other? That's what I want us to help us understand. That's the main point. What does this mean for us like practically? Well, what I want to do is I want to share with you a story that I think highlights how both of those two things can be true at once. What I'm going to do throughout the series is each week I'm going to seek to share with you one kind of more in-depth personal story of where I've experienced what we are talking about in the scriptures. Because I know, as I said at the beginning, some of this stuff we'll explore, it'll change some of our categories. It'll kind of push on some of our preconceptions. So to try to make sure that it lands for us personally, I'm going to share with you how I've experienced what the Bible is talking about. Because I know for some of these sermons, it's going to be a little bit Andrew nerdy. It's not going to be like full Andrew nerd mode, because honestly, that isn't helpful to anyone. But I do want to talk about how does this intersect with our lives? Because as always, we do not come here just for information. We come here for transformation. We don't come just to learn Hebrew words. We come to actually encounter the very presence and spirit and person of God. So I'm going to share with you a story of where I encountered actually both kind of the otherness, the bigness of God and his spirit and his ruah, and also the intimacy, the closeness and the connection of God and his ruah. So I want to share with you about our firstborn son, Hudson, and about that pregnancy and about that labor and what happened. Now, Krista had a really long labor with Hudson. It was really difficult and challenging. And I say this, obviously, as a man who's not involved in that whatsoever. Uh, part of the reason I think that it was so challenging is that Krista was quite overdue with Hudson uh, when he was born. I can remember, actually, uh, her just really wanting to be done and to have, you know, the baby come out and all of that. So I had read, uh, I don't even know if this is true, but I had read that spicy food helps to bring on, pre- uh, like, like, labor and that sort of thing. Krista would probably have some very strong opinions on this now, but back then we were like, okay. So what we did was to try to kind of help things move along was I cooked her the spiciest pasta ever, and I can remember her bouncing on this, like, exercise ball all the while watching the Bachelor, thinking that these three things okay, would make for sure Hudson come out. The Bachelor, you know, bouncing or, you know, spicy food, whatever it was. And she did go into labor. And then, you know, we went to the hospital, did all those sort of things. But after about eight hours, after about eight hours, things just like, like stalled out. We were really uh, not moving. So I remember them saying like, okay, try to get some rest or to sleep or whatever. And so me being me, I did what I do when I have free time. Some of you are thinking reading, that, that is like close. What I started to do was actually to work on my thesis paper for my master's at that point, which was like a 200 plus page you know, thing, writing on you know, the incarnational uh, ecclesiology and what it means for us in the new missiological ventures. This is what I was writing on. And obviously this is what normal people do. And Krista turned to me, I remember in the midst of this, and she says, would you just submit that darn thing? And she might not have said the word darn, actually, in the midst of all of this, right? Um, You have no idea, honestly, how much progress I've made as an individual. I was pretty much useless for our first five years of marriage. But anyway, the labor's going on for a really long time, and it's a really difficult, challenging thing. There's actually, like, uh, real concerns with Krista's health because her blood pressure was through the roof. She was on something called mag sulfate. It was really difficult. But then all of a sudden, kind of things kind of turn around, and Hudson is born. And Hudson is born. And Hudson is born. And this... This is when I experienced both of those two poles that I was trying to talk about. Both the intimacy of God's ruah and the strength and the power and the otherness of God's ruah and his spirit. That when Hudson was born, 
that when Hassan was born and when he took his first little breath, which I was there for, which I was holding, which we were all like just like staring at him, there is nobody in the world who could convince me in that moment that that first breath that he took was not the very breath of God, that that was not the breath that God had given to him, that his life was only created and sustained through the amazing creator of the universe. I don't know how you could go through an amazing birth and to see somebody be born and then to not believe that there is something beyond you in that moment when my, you know, little, little boy, when he breathed his very first breath, I knew in a deep, intimate, personal, connected way that that was the Ruah of God and that God was in him and a part of him and connected to him. So I felt the deep intimacy in that moment. It was, it was amazing. But then also, what I also sensed also was the huge grandeur and transcendence of God. Because while I'm holding this little tiny boy, right, feeling like, if you can put it this way, feeling holy fear and holy awe, thinking that now this life is really one that I'm called to steward and to care for and having really no idea what to do, that when I'm holding this tiny little boy and he is breathing, I am both deeply connected to him and also aware of my insignificance, of the complexity of the universe, of how big and great God is, that in that one moment, in that one moment of holding him and as he grabs my, you know, my, my pinky with his little hand, I am both deeply connected to the Ruah of God in the intimate way, but also aware of the astounding power and fierceness of the grandeur of God and his spirit. That both of those two things, the intimacy and the otherness, the intimacy and immediacy and transcendence can be true at once. So what I wanna share with you is that when it comes to really understanding God's spirit, his ruah is that both of those two things are true. He is deeply intimate to us in our very breath, in our very breathing in and out. We are connected to him. And yet also there is a deep transcendence to God as well, where he is not like us. And we can experience him in these miraculous, amazing, divine, big moments of life, whether that's birth or death or a moment of prayer and meditation or whatever it may be. That what I hope to explore today with you is that God is with each and every one of us, but he's also beyond each and every one of us. And his spirit is with each and every one of us. And his spirit is also beyond each and every one of us. So practically, what does this mean for us today as we explore really God's Ruah, his spirit in the Old Testament? What does it mean for us to understand that God is both really intimate in our breath, but also really different than us with his power and his strength and that his Ruah cannot be easily categorized? What do these two things then mean for us practically here today? I share with you where I experienced both of them at the same time. But what does this mean for you and what does this mean for me? Well, here's what I think it means for us today. What I want to invite you into, and especially throughout all of this series, what I want to invite you into is just this. I want to invite you into and to challenge you to pay attention for the Spirit moving in your life. To pay attention to the Spirit moving in your life. Because the Spirit is moving in your life. You are only breathing the very breath of God. You are ruahing His ruah. So would you pay attention for God's Spirit in your walk, in your life, in your experiences? And what should you be looking for? We should certainly be watching and waiting and paying attention for God in big moments, right? Like we saw him moving in big moments with fire, with quail, with prophecy. I experienced that too when I experienced the birth of Hudson and the beautiful grandness of all of that. We should look for God in the big moments of life. Birth, death, maybe it's at a sunset where you feel connected to things that are larger. Maybe it's in a moment of prayer and contemplation where you realize just how big, wide, and deep God's love for you truly is. How big, deep, and wide his spirit truly is. How how abundant his spirit is. We should actually pay attention for God in the big moments, but also 
also in the everyday moments, in the small moments where we breathe in and out, recognizing and realizing that we are deeply already connected to God because we only exist because of him. Our existence is dependent on him. We are not separate for him. Otherwise, as the text says, as the text says, we will return to dust. No, 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 we are deeply connected to him. So I wanna invite you for this week and also for this series to pay attention for the movement of God's spirit in your life. To pay attention for God's, the movement of God's spirit in your life. For his ruah, his wind breath spirit. Pay attention for how he is moving in your life and in mine because he is active. And so to help us with this today, to help us with this today, I actually want to explore and to actually practice today a prayer exercise that is ancient and that has been practiced by Christians for you know, thousands of years. Okay? I wanna take a look at what's called a breath prayer. And a breath prayer is really where we breathe in, paying attention to our breath, and breathe out, praying alongside with that rhythm and that timing, recognizing the fact, recognizing the fact that the breath we are breathing is the very breath of God, right? That as the text says, when you give us your ruah, Lord, life is created. We are created when we breathe his breath. So we're going to pray this here today and to practice this here together. And what I want to invite you to do, what I want to invite you to do is maybe even to just close your eyes and to just hear the prayers that I, I pray. I'm going to invite you to repeat after me as you breathe in and then breathe out some lines of scripture. That's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to breathe in and to breathe out some lines of scripture to just actually connect you with God, to remind you that you are already connected to him, to remind you that you are breathing the very breath of God. So we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to sit, to be still, and then to actually breathe in and breathe out, praying along with me scripture that connects us with God and his spirit. Because what's my big idea today? My big idea is really simple. Is that God's spirit is deeply intimate and, you know, other than us. But that we can pay attention for him. That we can pay attention for him and we can find him because he is moving in your life and he is moving in mine. So let's do that in and through breathing and breathing and praying scripture here together. So to begin with, let's pray. God, I ask, as we come into this moment, I pray, Lord, would you speak to us? I pray, Lord, would we feel deeply connected to you because we are. I pray, God, will we pay attention? Will we really discern your spirit, your ruah in our lives? I pray as we pray these words of scripture over ourselves and over one another, I ask, God, would you move in our lives? Would you help us to develop a greater awareness and depth of your spirit, of your ruah in our lives? Might we see you, might we follow you, and might we be faithful to you? And I pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. So I want to invite you to find a moment of quietness and stillness right here in this moment. To know that God is with you, his presence is with you, and you're breathing his very breath. So I invite you to repeat after me these words of scripture. One set as we breathe in, and another as we breathe out. Letting scripture and God's spirit really center us and guide us, because we are connected to him. And let us be reminded of that by our breathing and by the truth of scripture here together. And these scripture readings have been compiled by Sarah Bessie, and I'm really glad for her work in this. So let's begin and let us pray here together. Let's breathe in, praying this. Humble and gentle one, you are the rest of my soul. True vine and gardener, I abide in you. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Be still and know that you are God. Your grace, 
is enough for me. There is no fear in your love. I will not be afraid for you are with me. You are our refuge and you are our strength. Both day and night belong to you. You surround me with love and tender mercies. You fill my life with good things. Peace of Christ, guard my heart and mind. And may you stay connected to God and pay attention to him. Might you find him working in your life in little ways and in big ways. Because God's spirit, his raw is with you and is with me. Let us pay attention to him, let us follow him, and let us be faithful to him. Amen.